Hello and welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. And today's podcast is the next one in this in the Emotion at Work in Stories kind of mini-series. Um, and these uh, podcasts are a much more personal account of individuals' experiences with emotion or emotions and or kind of mental health in the workplace. And today's topic, we're going to look at equality. And equality is a huge issue in the workplace. It's a topic that often brings quite intense emotions to the fore because people's views or opinions on the topic are often linked to deep values or beliefs that they may hold and, and or parts of their identity. So my guest today is open both about his sexuality as a gay man, but also the challenges he faces with anxiety. And in our chat, before we agreed to record this podcast, um, he talks about how his experiences as a young gay man have informed the anxiety, the anxiety that he experiences. Um, and it's something that we're going to explore um, in our conversation today. And, and, and we're also going to start to think about, well, how his experiences as a gang, as a gay man within HR because I think HR is often kind of positioned as one of the um, ambassadors of uh, of employee welfare or employee well-being, or, you know, and they're the creators of things like equality policies and so on. So actually being a minority, being part of a minority group in HR and kind of how has that experience also um, kind of featured and formed in uh, in his uh, life so far. Anyway, enough of me talking. Let's get him on the air. So my guest uh, today is Tony Jackson. Hello, Tony. Hi there, Phil. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. So before we get into kind of the some of the themes that I've talked about proper, I'd like to start with a unexpected and innocuous question that we'll both answer. So is that okay? Yeah, of course. Wonderful. So my question for you, my unexpected innocuous question this for this episode then is, what makes for a good walk? That's a great question. Uh, one of the things that people uh, notice um, about me, for example, if, we've, if we visit a new city or a new country, is that um, I really like to wander um, without a destination. Um, ah, so, okay. So if, if for someone the walk is about the destination, uh, then they might become a bit frustrated with me. Uh, so wandering around new cities, there's this wonderful uh, word in French of flaneur, um, which is someone who wanders around Paris uh, without necessarily knowing where they're going to end up. Ah, um, okay. And I'm just so excited by sort of the the sensory emotions around me sometimes in a new place that I'm uh, wandering around just really noticing things and, and soaking it all up. On the other hand, though, I've got a fairly low boredom threshold, so if you ask me to do the same walk 50 times, uh, I might be more interested in the destination and getting it over and done with. <laughs> okay. So, but if it's a if it's a new place somewhere you haven't been before, the the the, the wandering and being a flanner would be your kind of preferred, or w- would make a good walk for you. I think so. I mean, even last week, um, I was up in Marylebone and knew that I needed to get down to somewhere near Victoria, and as you do on a nice sunny day in London, decided to just wander along, and I had plenty of time. So I was really just exploring and seeing what I could see and mm. looking up and noticing the buildings. And um, as always in, in London, th- th- there are always things you've never seen before. Yeah. Um, and I really noticed how content I felt when I was doing that. Um, really very, actually quite happy. Um, really wandering aimlessly, even though also it was a destination. It was if you plotted the route, uh, I went all over the place without having yeah. intended to really. Yeah, I I do like a wander in London. 
Um, I was in, similarly, I was in Marlebone recently, um, but my wander took me back to one of my favourite places in London, which is the Inner Circle at Regent's Park. Oh, yes. Um, so I, that became my office for the afternoon. I had a, a meeting at around lunchtime, and then I had a few hours to spare in the afternoon, so I went and sat in, uh, went for a wander to Regent's Park. It took the long way to get to the Inner Circle, so it wasn't like a direct route to get there, but um, but yeah, I do, do, enjoy, um, do enjoy a good wander. So for, for me, though, a, a good walk is um, is one. Oh, so I, 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 because the, even though I say my, my questions are unexpected, I, obviously I know what the question is, so it's not that <laughs> unexpected for me. Um, so I, I don't. So my initial answer that I thought through was that um, I like walks to have pace. So I, you know, I, I, I like to walk at a. Um, uh, pace to kind of make it a, a, a dual benefit of yes I enjoy to I get to see things and, and experience what's around me but also I get to do some kind of physical exercise and, and to a certain degree rehab type stuff as well um, but as you talked about wandering I've realised that I think it depends so so there, there, are, there are walks with a purpose and I like those to be outside I like them to be um, in in spaces that are green and I like to be kind of physically active with it so it's it's a it's, it's a kind of walking with a purpose but I think there's there's other types of walk which are meanderful if that's even a word or it is just yeah wandering around and and seeing where I get to and, and seeing what happens yeah I mean what... I tend to, yeah go on I was just going to say, um, an example of a walk that didn't go very well happened at the weekend. Um, we got the dog last year, and he's uh, wonderful, but uh, slightly has a mind of his own, as most creatures do. Um, and I allowed him to go for a paddle in the Thames near Richmond, and before I knew it, he was halfway across. Um, it's, it's oh, not, no, really? It's not quite as dramatic as him being halfway across at, say, Westminster. Um, but still, um, and then he realised he was a bit out of his uh, comfort zone as well. So that was an interesting moment. So that wasn't a good walk. <laughs> <laughs> so is is walking a, a strategy that you... Because you mentioned that, you know, when you were doing your wandering around uh, from Marlebone down to Victoria, that you felt quite happy, you felt quite content. Is, is, it, is walking a strategy you use um, to help you work with some of the anxiety that you experience? I think walking with my camera, as you may know, I'm a really keen amateur photographer. Yeah. Uh, and seeing, for example, London through the lens and seeing what you can see. And I'm very into street photography, so it's not necessarily set-piece photography. It's more what's going on in the world around me and how can I see it and how can I see it differently. Mm. Um, and I absolutely love that. And I can walk huge distances uh, when I've got my camera without even really noticing it okay and what is it about the what is it about the through the lens bit that appeals for you I think it provides a little bit more of a purpose and it I, I, I forget what's going on in life I forget what's going on around me uh, mm. too much um, when, when, I, when I'm out there um, so in the wonderful world of positive psychology, some people talk about third place. That, yeah, yeah. That, that place that isn't work, isn't home, and is for you. Um, that's my way of explaining it anyway. And, yeah, yeah. Um, photography is very much my third place. Uh, so 
in the context of the question about your walk, my mind immediately went to that. And I suppose it's walk with a little bit of a reason, which addresses the boredom threshold point that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. But I do lose myself in photography and I lose myself in post-production. So I can spend hours uh, fiddling around on Lightroom um, to you know, just tweak the exposure and so on. Uh, just really takes me to a different place. So I, I find that really interesting from, from a couple of different points of view. So one is that um, uh, so I'm, I'm nice self-censoring and going, why am I sharing this? But anyway, we'll, we'll go with it. So I was at an event last week and um, there was a question asked about mindfulness. And, yep. um, and for me, there's a, there's a big kind of misconception about what mindfulness is. So, you know, in a lot of places it's a meditative practice but for me it's not about that it's about attention and it's about putting all of your attention into something now that can be into the into your breathing rhythm um, or it can be into the sounds that are around you or it can be into um, whatever it is really but it's putting your, it's kind of putting all of your attention into one thing um, whereas I think the the general consensus conception is that it's all about meditation. Well, it's not about that, in, in my view, anyway. Um, so when when you talk about your third place and, and getting lost in the post production and getting lost in the um, uh, in the wandering around and taking photos through the lens, it really reminded me of, of what I used to feel when I used to run. You know, I would just get lost in running. It was just yep. me, and it was just me and, and my surroundings, and a count of eight. So it's just, you know, that was that was my rhythm. I would count for eight, and and just, um, and that and that was it. And so when people say, "What do you do for mindfulness?" I'll say, "Well, I run." And I'm like, well, you can't run mindfully. And I say, "Well, you can actually, because you know, if it if you worked with the definition of mindfulness being it's about putting all of your attention into something, then absolutely I am. You know, I don't go to run to think about other stuff. I go to run to think about nothing and just be in the running there's a link there to my coaching practice uh, if, if as I think any coach should do you're trying to create conditions of flow in a coaching session both for you mm. well, for you and the coachee um, that relaxed state of concentration um, is a, a mindful state a, a state of heightened attention so on the meditation could potentially be a route to it so it's one of the tools in your toolkit yeah um, one of the best things I've ever done um, is decide to go on my detox retreats, which I do every year, and we can maybe come back to that later. Um, but just as a, as, a, as a headline, I've learned there that practicing meditation in different ways can be a route to um, a place where you have real clarity of thought, but it's the route to it. It's not the state itself. So I completely yes. agree with you about that. And I completely agree and support your view that, uh, of course, doing something which you really enjoy and which is just right for you, um, for example, running, um, it, that is mindfulness. So completely with you on that one. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for in indulging my um, <laughs> sort of sidebar. You're welcome. Um, it's a conversation, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the uh, so I said it, it made me think about two things. So one was um, 
their kind of my view on, on, on mindfulness. And then the, the second um, the second thing it got me thinking about was um, the I guess the restorative nature of it. Um, and so, and, and you know, so I've asked: is, is it something you do as a restorative kind of thing? Because it helps you know helps give you that that attention, and you you go to that third place. Um, what other restorative practices do you tend to use so you mentioned the retreats as well yeah well you mentioned a few minutes ago the idea of being very focused on the breath uh, Mm. and some of the techniques that you pick up by going on those sorts of retreats you can practice them even in a crowded tube carriage yeah Um, so if someone is in the group with me that detests rush hour tube travel um to the point of actually not really being able to do it anymore so i actually try and avoid tube travel um during the rush hour but if i am in that situation i find that some of the techniques that you pick up um from those retreats um you can actually practice them there so Mm. um, playing with your own energy um complete focus on the breath to Yep, move away from any other thoughts or emotions that are going on and so on yeah uh, and the retreats aren't all about that but um, certainly I've got a few things in my toolbox uh, as a result of going on them I think restorative mm. is a really good word actually um, and ha- I'm not sure I've even ever th- thought about it quite in those terms I mean obviously there's a, there's a there's a linked objective of going there if you're going on a retreat uh, even the word itself um but actually that's a really good way of framing it. Okay. So in, in my introduction then I talked about a number of different things. So I I talked about, um, being open with your sexuality. I talked about being, you know, and the impact that's had on, uh, on your anxiety. I also talked about, um, being open about your sexuality within HR. And then that links us back into some equality, and I know they're different things, but I'm going to bring three terms together in terms of equality and diversity and inclusion-ness within that. Um, and then there's anxiety in general. Um, and to a certain degree, I, I, I want to kind of give you an element of, of kind of control about where we go. So of of those different aspects or those different themes, where would you like us to start? I think in the context of what I understand you're trying to achieve with, with, this, with this series, which is a great yep. series, by the way, yeah, Thank thanks, you. thanks for the invitation, um, is understanding what it's like to carry around with you a sense of difference mm. and how your experiences in life and in the workplace can really tailor your instinctive responses to... Uh, situations you find yourself in. Okay. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the, the the place to go off into the realm of psychosynthesis and all that sort of stuff, which I'm really fascinated about. And you know, there are elements of that in my coaching practice. Mm-hmm. But summing it up as you know, what gets in the way, and that, that classic coaching term of inner game. Um, so okay. yeah. how, do you, how do you get in your own way? Um, I think that's the sort of place where I would start because for me um, I'm pretty robust about how I look after myself in terms of other people's reactions to my sexuality um, 
and it's not a sob story. I've got a story, but it's not a sob mm. story. Um, in fact, you know, I've had a fantastic experience as, as an openly gay man, and I was, let's say, largely out in the workplace way before there were the workplace protections in place that there are now, which okay. is a really interesting experience, experiences that really shape you. Mm. One or two of the things that happened to me early in my career, which built on things that happened to me in my teenage years uh, and at university, um, of course I carry them around with me to this day. I mean, I'm 53 years old now. Um, one of the things that happened to me when I was 19, 20 years old um, mm -hmm. comes back to me over and over and over again. It was one of the most dramatic moments of, of my life and it was linked to uh, this particular point. So I think, as you said, yes, there is a complexity. We need to narrow it down. So overall, um, in the context of this series, I think it's the what's getting what what gets in the way and how that shapes your interactions with other people. Okay, so let's stick with that then. Um, so what does get in the way? If we look at my current reality, so now running my own business, have been doing for five years, mm -hmm. inverted commas, on my own terms, certainly my own boss, you would think that this becomes a non-issue. In fact, I find I think about the fact that I might be different to a lot of other people a lot more than I used to when I was in employment. Really? Because in employment, effectively, you have a level of protection. Whereas now, if I go into um, a chemistry meeting with a potential coachee, and they're using, well, who knows which criteria to decide which, which coach to pick. Yeah. Every single time, I think about how open to be about who I am, and whether for example, my sexuality or indeed any other way I might be different is actually relevant or irrelevant. Um, so it's it's something that's always on my mind. Um, and as a coach, you want to be authentic. Mm. As a coach, you need to be putting some flesh in the game at times. I had a situation recently where someone, someone suddenly decided that they wanted to discuss something about something that's going on in their workplace where it would have been really bizarre for me not to declare my own sexuality in the context of what they were asking me about. Okay. Um, and the guy, in a very good way, um, nearly fell off his chair because he hadn't the slightest inkling from our work together to that point mm. uh, that I might have a different sexuality to him, and indeed, nor was it relevant. Uh, but suddenly it became relevant. So yeah. I think that's been a surprise to me as well um, in terms of perhaps feeling in some ways slightly more limited than I did when I was in employment. And that's, so I find that really interesting because the the general narrative would suggest that, you, as you alluded to when you set the context for that, that being your own boss would, would feel freer than, um, than being in employment. Yeah, and in many ways it does. Um, and... Of course, there are two things at play here. There's the, do I feel it's an issue? And 
do I need to feel it's an issue? Mm. Because actually, in most people's minds, it isn't, but you never quite know. No. Um, and you have to earn a living, and I want my company to be successful. And so that thought process that many people might go through um, with some type of difference, um, or if they feel they belong to a minority group, is at play, and it's at play very regularly. Even with my most important uh, repeat clients, one or two of the key players, um, I don't think would be aware of my sexuality. And that's not because I've necessarily hidden it, but yeah. we haven't talked about it as openly as someone who's heterosexual might do. So is it... As a as a heterosexual white man, then. So you, so what you've said has got me thinking. So it's got me thinking. So do I? Is that something I consider? So does is it? You know. So talking about wife, children. Um, you know, does that is that does that play on? Does that play on my mind at all when? when I'm working with or, or you know, either working with existing clients or talking to prospective new clients. Um, and I don't think it does. So the, the only the only aspect of of me that does worry about um, things is, um, I, suppose I say only because there might be two actually. So the main one that, that most often comes to mind is how open I am about the some of the work that I do in in the behavioural analysis and deception detection world. So so I, I do quite a bit. Um, so I, you know I, I work with different um, law enforcement agencies. I, I you know I run I work with a with a with another um, organisation to run you know programmes in behavioural analysis and evaluation and truthfulness and. Um, and I provide services, you know, investigative services to clients as well. But it's not something I talk about very often, because when I do, it changes the interaction. Because when when somebody finds out that you know I pay particular attention to, you know, small changes in language, small changes in posture, small changes in face expression, um, and then I can then use that to get a read of how somebody might be feeling or or what somebody might be thinking about something. Um, it dramatically changes the interaction that I have so I'm always cautious about how open again I don't hide it so if people ask me then I'll tell them yes yeah, so it's not about um, deliberately withholding but it's how open kind of how open do I be and it's a really interesting dilemma I have with with my coaching clients you know and, and what I've landed on is I'm, I'm really open from the start so I tell them this is you know this is what I do this is part of my work this is um this is a key you know a key set of skills that I have but what that means is that I will often see or hear things that you don't necessarily want me to know because you're not telling me um and what do you want me to do with that when I see it you know so do you want me to just you know see it and put it to one side and ignore it do you want me to to ask you about it do you want me to um you know kind of hold it hold it to one side and then bring it in if i think it's relevant you know how do you want me to play that because you know there are times where i'll see and hear stuff that you you're not wanting me or not intending me to to see or hear and i completely empathize with that point and agree with it so when i'm talking about my coaching practice with many people i'll talk about that in the mix despite the fact that I've been in the boardroom, been the HR director, developed the coaching practice over 15 years, all that great stuff. 
I'll also mm. talk about the extent to which I use my personal intuition. Um, yeah. And I, my firm belief is that if you looked at the most impactful coaching sessions I've ever run, it's where I have used that, harnessed it, found a way of making it relevant to the coaching assignment, and then actually taken the personal risk of going to that place, the personal risk as coach. Yeah. Um, so I completely understand that point. Um, I think the, to just put a little bit of a different angle onto this, yeah, I, think, go on. I, think, I think the risk is that if, you come, if you're coming from a place of difference, i.e. possibly coming from a place where people have treated you differently because of the way you are, the risk is that you put up your own barriers where yeah. there don't need to be any. Mm. Um, and people can see the world quite simplistically. So uh, a really good example, which I think we've touched on in, in, a, in a conversation before, is I wrote a blog for a website called Are You Coming Out, which is getting older gay guys and lesbians to tell their coming out stories mm. um, to help people who might be going through that process right now. So um, you know, as in organizational life, if, if, if there's a lot of people telling great stories, there's a lot of learning in there and there's a lot of potential support and indeed inclusion in there. Yeah. Um, and one of, the, one of the key points I made in that was that uh, I have learned that you never stop coming out. It's exhausting. You do it over and over and over again. Every time you meet a new person, mm. you are effectively making a conscious decision to come out, certainly in the workplace. Um, and I put that into there. And a woman who I b believe to be um, a straight woman um, challenged me publicly on social media about this point, saying, well, absolute rubbish. You just come out and then that's it, isn't it? Um, which fascinated me as a response. So yeah. in, in, instead of being sort of interested in the experience of someone else, she was sort of trying to deny the experience of someone else, which is really intriguing. Um, probably a bit irritating as well, but it's certainly, certainly intriguing. Um, yeah. And so I unpacked that and explained to her, and then she said, oh, actually, I see, I, see, I see what you mean. Well, you know, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, But the, the key thing is I know myself well enough to know, I think, that... Um, I can put up those barriers, um, particularly um, if I'm feeling anxious or stressed about something. But if you looked at some of the things that happened in my, particularly my earlier years of my career, um, I think you can be forgiven for doing that as well. <laughs> yeah. So would, would you be ha would you be kind of happy, willing to to share one of those? Because I think it'd be. I think it is. So I, I guess the reason I'm asking that is because it's, um, I think it, it would be useful context to to how, um, yeah, to how how you are now. You know, you just said that you know those experiences have have formed, you know, kind of part or at least been in part of forming where you are now. Yeah. Well, so I wonder if it might be useful to explore one. Very happy to. Um, so let's think. Uh, my first ever job, which wasn't in HR. Um, I was sitting in a in a team meeting, um, and the boss, the team leader, just suddenly turned to me and said, "I've been hearing rumours about you, Tony." I said, "Oh yes." Um, he said, "I'm not going to tell you what I've been told about you, but just understand one thing: if I find out that they're true, you're out of this organisation." 
Wow. And he was referring to my sexuality. And of course, when I say of course, um, young, younger people might not quite realise how recently it was that the protections all came in. The first half of my career, broadly, um, I could probably challenge that, I'd need to check the dates, but let's say roughly the first half of my career was without employment law protection. So mm-hmm. you could be sacked on the spot yeah. with no recourse. Now that does put a different flavour onto your work life experience, sorry, your work experience. Um, and when someone's that blatant, it's almost easy to deal with, I suppose. But there's, there's, le- there's more subtle stuff as well. In, in, an, in another job, um, someone decided that before I'd told anyone about my sexuality, they'd worked it out and kept dropping these huge big hints, thinking they were coming from a really positive place about, um, I think I know what's going on for you and you know, all that sort of stuff. Okay. And they were on their agenda, doing what they think was right for another human being, uh, rather than asking questions and seeking to understand. Because there can be a million reasons why um, anyone, and I'm not just talking about sexuality here, just in basic um, relationships in the workplace. Are you on your agenda? And then is that the right agenda? Or are you on the agenda of the person in front of you? Are you dealing with the person in front of you, or are you assigning to a group about which you make huge assumptions, and therefore you get it completely wrong with the person in front of you? Um, but then there have been others. I mean, I, my, my dream job, um, the one that really changed my career, was arriving at uh, what was Price Waterhouse Management Consultants in 1995. Okay. So um, this would have been before the. This again was prior to any kind of employment law legal protection. Yes. For, yeah. Although um, their own policies uh, were ahead of legislation. In fact, places like PwC, um, of which I'm a proud alumnus, but also I think you'll find the other large professional services firms, always tended to be running ahead of employment law with their internal policies. But. I found out after I'd been there two months that the person who hired me um, had probably worked out that I was gay in the interview process, had spotted a potential problem with their boss, um, gone in and said, I want to hire Tony, by the way, he, yeah, he might be gay, he might not be, but if he is, um, if you've got an issue with it, um, let's talk about this now, and then I'm hiring. Okay. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, so it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't seeking permission, it was no, just seeking to... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but then someone who's in the team I joined told me a couple of months in that um, as a result of that conversation, um, the overall boss, who was of course the HR director, um, had uh, in a team meeting said, oh, by the way, when's the bent bastard arriving? Okay. Forgive the language to anyone listening. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's, that's, that's right. the language that was used. Yeah. Um, and that's the HR director. Mm. So, um, yeah, these these things shape you, and then little subtle things like um, you know having a let's say a pretty robust discussion with um, a fellow director as an HR director, um, and expressing strong disagreement with something, maybe displaying a slight bit of emotion about. Um, the thing that was the topic of conversation 
Mm. And the response is, I haven't got time to deal with one of your queenie fits. Well, I'm not sure I've ever had a queenie fit, whatever that is in the workplace. Um, yeah. Um, and, um, but just so dismissive of a different opinion and attaching it to the fact that you're different to them again. Mm. So they, they, those are the sorts of things. And as I said earlier, these aren't a sob story. But this is the life experience of many people, and there are people who've had much worse experiences than that. I don't regard those as, you know, I think the first one probably is quite dramatic, but mm. um, I'm not carrying around a sense of grievance around them. I am carrying around a sense of difference. Yeah. And how, how have those experiences and that sense of difference then, how do they, how do they play into the anxiety that you experience? It's a huge question, um, and I think my anxiety comes from, uh, I think it's just part of who I am. However, um, as I said earlier, the, the risk is that if you come from a place where you've in any way felt difference, and even at school's really interesting, and one of the things that a lot of um, gay men, bisexual men or women, lesbians, um, trans people will, will talk about is other people picking up on a sense that you're different before you even know that you are yourself. Mm. Um, and I've had dinner party conversations about this with, 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 with friends who said it's, it's really quite subtle and quite profound. And of course, it's something which you can't necessarily seek recourse within your family about when you're uh, growing up. Um, so, um, and I'll choose my words carefully here, but I'm just trying to make yeah. a certain point. You know, d yeah. Discrimination and being different will work different ways for different people, which takes us all into the realms of intersectionality. So, um, people of different sexuality can be discriminated against by their own family. Someone who's of a different race, so for example, a black person, mm -hmm. is unlikely to be discriminated against by their own family for being black assuming they're in an all-black family, um, but may well face much more overt discrimination walking down the street every day mm. or feeling that they're, only, they're the only black person in a restaurant full of white people or, or whatever it might be. So it takes you into the, the space, and I hope I chose my words carefully there um, because it's not a competition. Um, yeah. Trying to make the point of you know, do enough people in life and in the workplace really try and work out where someone else is coming from, given the different life experiences they've had. It doesn't have to be because you're part of a, a particular group. Everyone's had different life experiences, so everyone brings that with them to every interaction, to every meeting, to every conversation, to every discussion, to every disagreement. Um, so why would people see things the same way? Surely that would be more unusual Mm. Oh gosh, we all see this. We all see this the same way. Well, isn't that interesting? How can that possibly be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and yeah. Uh, sorry, I've probably got to take on a slight tangent there, but uh, no, no, it's I, fine. I, in my mind, I was answering the question. <laughs> um, so yeah, go on. So um, I, I think. In a link to anxiety, it 
I'm slightly struggling to put this into words, so apologies. No, it's all right, you take your time. Um, as an example, um, feedback from a, a partner at PwC who I've been doing a lot of work for, because um, I had this great job at PwC, um, I was asked to set up an internal HR consultancy for the firm itself with a charge-out rate. Oh, okay. Um, it, was, it was just brilliant. It was in 2001, as long ago as that. And I stayed in that job six years, and it took me into all sorts of different parts of the organisation and really broadened my experience. It was great. Um, and um, one partner was giving me feedback, and I mentioned the context of what my job was, because as, a, as with any consultant, what had happened was I had gone into a part of the business that I didn't know to help them deliver a part of their people strategy. And his feedback was in that context. And he said to me, I rate what you've done very, very highly. But if I can say one thing, I find you quite hard to know. Okay. And I think that was me clearly choosing not to bring my whole self into that work relationship. Because it was an unknown part of the organisation to me, underpinning that might well be... Uh, how will they act? If, how will they react if they do know the whole me? Yeah, and probably not consciously, because I thought I had a good, really good working relationship with him. And I think I probably did at one level. Uh, as I said, he he rated me very highly in in, in that yeah. feedback session. But he made this point, um, and at that point, because I valued the relationship, I completely opened up to him and said, you know what, you've hit the nail on the head. I think sometimes I am a bit like that, even though a lot of people see me as this sort of fairly outgoing, externalised thought processes, happy to talk to anyone, extroverted you know, in many senses, not all senses, by the way, um, yeah. person. Um, but actually there was something missing, and he really picked up on it, which is quite astute of him. And when I told him, he just said, gosh, I'm really sorry you feel you have to be that way. And I hope you didn't feel you had to be that way with me. I said, no, it's just clearly I've chosen not to go to a certain place. And you've spotted a difference there. So, yeah. you know, well done. And, you know, thanks for mentioning it. And it's led to a really high quality conversation now. Um, and he said, you, you know, you don't, I was at quite a senior level at this point. He said, you realise you don't need to worry about those sorts of things. And I said, well, I probably don't walk around worrying about them, but it does tailor maybe how I behave. Yeah. And and so if, if I could just stick with that for a moment, do was he was he talking about uh, yeah was he talking about you in general? Was he talking about you know your sexuality in particular? Or, or was he just saying I, I know the work Tony really well, but I don't know anything about the personal Tony? I think probably the latter. But I think in his okay. terms, he was also thinking, you know what, we often end up in the pub on a Friday and Tony's not there. Um, or okay. there's some yeah. laughing and joking about stuff that might not be work-related and Tony's got an inverted commas professional face on. In other words, putting a barrier up. Yeah, yeah. So not joining in. <clears throat> not participating at that point. Mm. Um, and he really noticed that. So I suppose there's a sort of there's a calculated element there, isn't there, to you know 
how am I going to be here? And therefore, that's a lack of authenticity. Hello there, fair podcast listener, and you will no doubt have noticed that the audio cut out abruptly. So at this point, I got a phone call from my daughter's school to tell me that she was poorly and needed picking up. So I disappeared, went off, collected her, brought her home. She's fine, by the way. Um, and I'll hand you back into the recording when Tony and I picked up our conversation again. So welcome back to the Emotion at Work podcast. Um, so we've had a, a, a pause in proceedings. Um, I had a, a call from my daughter's school to say that she was poorly. So we, we paused while I've gone to, to pick her up. And um, and now we're going to sort of pick back up from, from where we were. So if this isn't a seamless pick up from, from where Tony, Tony and I left the conversation, then um, apologies. But we'll, we'll do our best to pick up where we were. So I think, Tony, then we were at... Um, we were talking about a, a previous colleague of yours who um, you'd done some work with who said they really rated the work that you'd done and um, and that in that particular or that particular time or in your interaction so far, um, he'd found you harder to get to know. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah, okay. By the way, for, for, for the listeners, we have established that Phil's daughter is is not too seriously ill. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes. Thank you, Tony. Yes, she is. She is, <laughs> she is fine. She's home and she's okay. Um <laughs> And, um, and and it got me to thinking then, so whilst I was walking to and from um, this, my daughter's school, it got me to thinking about, well, how or to what extent do does everybody hide parts of who they are or, or, or choose not to share parts of who they are in, in the workplace? So if I think about, say, um, other conversations I've had with um, with other guests on the podcast, I suppose, as well, around, so for example, when I spoke with Amy King about burnout. So part of that was that she wasn't aware, you know, she, she wasn't aware that she was feeling or she was experiencing burnout, but also she wasn't sure if she wanted to share that she was. Um, and, and, and I guess I'm, I'm using that from a point of difference, you know, so she perceived that she was different in a, in a particular way to others. And she, you know, she was then choosing not to share that. So is is there something in that? Do you think, in terms of, does is it is it okay for everybody to bring all of themselves to work? I think it it's it's okay um, to a certain extent. It takes us into realms of authenticity, doesn't it? And there's a it bit does, of a red flag yeah. around authenticity. I mean, I'm the first to talk to my coaches about authentic leadership, and in fact, I was presenting to a group of leaders um, the weekend before last, and we went, we went into this place of talking about authenticity. Um, and the risk is that some people um, think that authenticity is around um, sort of unreconstructed, unfiltered me. Yeah. Um, so displaying everything, da di da di da, which of course certainly in the context of leadership, but frankly for anyone, I think there is something to balance the idea of authenticity, which is what is your brand at work? And there'll be some people listening to this uh, might immediately find that difficult because do, should you have a separate brand work and otherwise yeah certainly in the first half of my career I managed my brand very carefully and that included being open about all sorts of things but I was careful about it and it was it was a different version of me mm. I don't think it was inauthentic though I think it was just careful um, and I think that's okay in a work environment. I think I think it has to be. Um, I can think of well, for example, um, my my husband and I were, were serious party animals. So at the weekend, we're you know going through the clubs of London and indeed other cities. Mm. 
I'm not sure every single detail of our expeditions um, into different nightclubs was necessarily for the workplace. There was nothing dramatically wrong going on. <laughs> but yeah. do you choose to share everything? Um, and how does it impact on you? And, and particularly if you're already thinking that you might be slightly different. So there's that, there's that balance between authentic you and which versions of you are there. Um, and certainly you can see, even out on social media, when people do talk, and indeed in your series, when people do talk about the challenges they're facing, you get a largely positive response. You don't mm. get a universally positive response. Yeah, There's agreed. always something else going on. Um, and I've got a couple of thoughts on that. Go on. Um, so, for example, um, I'm very resistant to anything that falls into the realms of all men this, all women that. Um, and what I notice is that you can find people of either gender falling into the trap of making stereotypes about the other gender. Okay. Um, and it seems to me, and this is based on some employee relations experience as well, that being the minority in a by gender, it's not just always about how, what's it like for the woman in, surrounded by men. It can be very interesting to see what the experience is for, for men surrounded by women. Mm. Um, and again, I'm choosing my words carefully. Um, one of the trickiest employee relations cases I've ever seen was the experience of a man in an all otherwise all-female team. Um, and the precise dynamics that you'd see elsewhere were being repeated, but just the other way around, which is fascinating on one level and is really disappointing also. Mm. Um, I've had personal experience of this because um, there were some interactions at one point on Twitter where um, people were resisting quite strongly the fact that there'd been an article in People Management about well, what's it like to be a man in HR. It's just one mm. one one edition. Yeah. Um, and there were some really strong reactions, including from some women out on, on Twitter, which, because they were quite strong views, I thought, well, it's okay to join in with some quite strong views in return. Um, because my point was, um, you can't necessarily say that all men have it better in, in, in the HR profession. It may be that many do, but actually... Are you thinking to talk? Are you thinking about uh, Asian men, black men, gay men, bisexual men, so on and so forth, and what their experience is, or indeed, frankly, just any man? You can't make sweeping generalisations about it, and it caused quite a hoo-ha, you know, publicly and behind the scenes, that I challenge mm. back on this point. The point being, we're dealing with individuals here, and back to where you started with this thought. The other, th the other idea is um, when I worked at Macmillan, I led the HR function for Macmillan Cancer Support. I did a lot of work um, alongside that, going out effectively as a volunteer into, into organisations to work on the work and cancer agenda. Okay. Um, and given your question is how much does one reveal in the workplace and is it okay to hold stuff back? And your example was an interesting one. If we talk about carers, carers don't necessarily self-identify as a carer. They might just think, mm. I'm, looking after, I'm looking after someone. But actually, they have huge needs in the workplace. They need a lot of support. Um, and I would be very surprised if any organisation could accurately put a number on the number of people in their workforce who were currently carers. 
and therefore people must therefore be hiding an element of their life. I don't particularly want to talk about the fact that I'm going home and my other half is having a real struggle with um, a long-term illness mm. or I'm going away and looking after a parent you know, struggling with well, being widowed or being you know, living with dementia or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. So what do we do to understand the individual in front of us? What makes them tick? To make it okay for them to be whoever they want to be because I think we, the risk is that we start to go off on a crusade of um, let's all be our full selves in the workplace well not everyone wants to be some people want to come in do a good job and go home again mm. um, and back to my experience the thoughtful feedback that we've talked about from that partner yeah um, led to really you know I was very grateful for him going there because he was actually being very empathetic um, and I think he probably knew what which conversation he was about to have but um, not everyone is is as um, subtle or as on your side as that because he was clearly on my side so I think the big thought here is are you on the side of the person in front of you or are you on your own agenda mm. yeah you made that point earlier on as well Ah, I'm repeating myself. Sorry. No, 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 it's fine. No, no, no. <laughs> and, 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 sorry, no, that that wasn't my. That wasn't. Uh, I was. Um, I was saying what I was. Uh, my meaning behind it was that's an important point to make. Um, so it wasn't. It wasn't. Are you repeating yourself? It was a. That's an important point to to reinforce. Um, and it's a, that, we're in the realms of assumptions as well, aren't we? So back back to that big I word I've mentioned once, which is intersectionality. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought to this, um, influenced by one or two people in the charity of which I'm a trustee. Um, and we're not talking about this anywhere near enough in the corporate world, maybe in the third sector and the public sector. Um, but it really starts to get you to think about sort of the entitlements that you have and that actually you may well have a more entitled um, and privileged uh, life, you know, inverted commas, even as a white gay man, than maybe the person next to you who's um, a black gay man. Mm. Um, who's got a completely different life experience. And it's back to this key point that I like to get across to a lot of people whenever I have the opportunity, including here, of don't assume that you can start to understand the reality of the person. Ask the questions to understand the reality of the person. Yeah, one, one of my kind of personal mantras is um, there's always more going on. Yeah, there's 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 always more going on than you than you you may think or see or hear, um, yeah. and and if you work on that you know basis, you, you you're you're unlikely to find yourself kind of coming up short, because you're always open to there being something else, another other explanations, other possibilities, other options, and so on. Um. Yeah, I think I, I think it's. Because I, I I agree with you in that the um, the authenticity you know the 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 uncensored authentic self isn't authenticity, you know the the you with no filters no censor no no consideration of others is um, that's not I, I don't think that's what authenticity is is trying to be I don't think that's what authenticity is about um, that's yeah that's about yeah that's brutal honesty not authenticity necessarily. Um, and so, is it okay for them for people to keep stuff to themselves? Um, so I, I think it is, and 
Um, and there is a there's a risk that that we we take the the bring whole self to work too literally or too far, because or that becomes a mantra, and yeah. on, on, and serving which agenda? Uh, because I think I mean, my experiences in life, for example, I think made me a much more inclusive person than. Um, that might otherwise have been. Doesn't mean I get everything right. No. Um, and I, far from it. Um, I, I think it's very easy, particularly if you're in a leadership position, to get this sort of thing wrong. You know, if you have the value, we are open. Well, what if someone doesn't want to be that open? Mm. Does that mean they're not living the values? These are quite big questions, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think what then, because hmm. when I then think about the one of the original kind of themes that I positioned at the start of the podcast that we were that we were going to explore today, which is around the around anxiety as a as a theme. Yeah. So I, I would, um, and maybe unfairly, but I I'll go with it anyway. I would I would link anxiety to to fear as an emotion in that um and and what some of the research suggests is that there are when when you look at reasons why people are scared invariably it comes back to a they perceive there to be a threat of harm of some description that could be a harm to their physical self but it can also be a harm to their psychological self so it can be a harm to their their identity or their reputation or their um you know, their, their potential future earnings or their potential future clients or their potential future prospects in an organization so it's not and, and it's not those threats don't always have to be you know kind of real in the physical realm if that makes sense so they, those threats can be real like you know you, you, something's happening in in the world around you at that particular moment in time but you can also feel threatened by something that might happen you know if if i do this then what you know in, in the if when or if then kind of conundrum Yes. So I think what sits behind some of those things that you might want to keep to yourself is the un- is the insecurity or the unsure or the anxiety about or well, what what could that mean for me or what could that you know what harm could that do for me or what harm could that bring for me or to me. Yes, and indeed if someone's prone to anxiety as I've I've realized you know, at the age of sort of forty seven, forty eight, so five mm. years ago probably, I, I put that label on so it was actually quite a breakthrough to, to identify it as something. So rather than why am I feeling the way I'm feeling, it's more ah, my anxiety's at play. Yeah. Which is actually quite helpful to have that label, certainly for me. Mm. Um the to build on what you've just said, um the way I experience anxiety is that those things which might be a threat feel very real and it's the flip side of the intuition that I use in my coaching I think we've touched okay. on that already yeah, yeah. Um, and if one has the um, ability to spot and notice things and draw inferences and pull it all together into a concept that might actually be real that can be a real positive the same applies if it's anxiety, so you pull together all these thoughts and ideas and create a concept which is a really negative thought and mm-hmm. it feels very real to you. And if you add to that that 
sometimes, often, the things about which you are anxious or scared actually then come true. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, it's probably not the right focus for this podcast, but just as some context, my biggest fear as a child was losing my mum, and then my mum died and I was a young man. So, <laughs> you know, the, the things you're frightened of actually then can happen. Can Therefore, happen. Yeah. The, the anxiety, you can think, actually, you go into real fight-or-flight place. Um, mm. Now, if that is being triggered by someone in the workplace who is, being, is treating you differently or even being hostile to you because of who you are, then the risk is that you're in the grip, you have a stress response, it impacts on your performance, it impacts on that relationship. Crucially, you're not at your best. Hmm. Hmm. And and I guess if if we were then going to sort of play with some some psychological constructs, then so what we then what what we're talking about then is we I think what we're talking about then is we we then create a trigger associated with that particular thing. So it, you know if or when, when I did X. I got why um, and and because of the either intensity of the emotion at the time or the if 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 that's happened a number of times that can make the the trigger hotter as well and and then um, we potentially turn it into a script so we we then e- we can pl- we can easily see how this plays out we can see yes, how this and, plays out. and I'll add to that back into realms of psychosynthesis the future as interference so a lot of psychology is about what has happened to you to up to the current date that impacts on how you are and mm. how you experience the world and how you respond to the world. Well, um, we're introducing the concept of future events as interference. Yeah. Um, and so if the future event is something that you're frightened of, it impacts on your performance. So if I go into that interview to be HR director the first time uh, and this happened, um, and they say I like to test how honest people are just by exploring the things you put down as your um, hobbies which is not quite how I'd interview someone but that was the question they asked so I'd put passions about all things Italian on my CV they said well tell me about that and I said well my other half's Italian they said oh where's she from and said he now that is a two letter word Mm. the amount of anxiety attached to using that two-letter word but actually feedback after the event was um you did that with such ease that you made it okay for everyone I shouldn't have to make it okay for everyone it's just it is what it is so um next time you're going for an interview you think um gosh how will how will they react um if I do it again that worked last time will it work next time Mm. Um, will it get in my way of future progression do I even get onto the list for the future progression within the organisation so on and so forth yeah, and your yeah. mind starts to just as, which is back to your point just starts to become your own worst enemy and if we're talking in any way here about impact on you know, your performance because it's emotion at work um, yeah. then you know, off you go are you at your best And and how how does the anxiety sort of manifest itself for you? So, is, um, is, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, um, quite uh, viscerally at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um, 
mind and body stuff. And in fact, you know, I'm delighted to say, it's something I've been working on really hard over the last few months, and um, I seem to have you know, moved on in well, touch wood to a certain extent by doing a variety of different things. Um, I certainly feel like I'm in a different place, having uh, had a more challenging year or so you know, from an anxiety perspective. Mm. I've worked really hard on it. Um, I experience it, as I said, um, it can feel like mental overload, um, but it can also feel like um, someone's got my guts in their hands and they're wringing them out, you know, real okay. um, yeah, yeah. feeling. Um, and um, that can become quite overwhelming, actually. Um, so finding ways of, of, of dealing with that. And interestingly, uh, well, I think interestingly, if you ask the people um, who I've worked most closely with over, over my career, I think there would be a theme um, in what I think has been a successful career mm-hmm. of um, the, there are moments sometimes with you, Tony. It feels like we're getting a stress reaction. Well, you are. <laughs> um, and it becomes it can become so overwhelming that it's actually quite hard to not to display it one way or another. And again, it might come across as difference. It might even come across as withdrawing. Or it might come mm-hmm. across as yeah, really violently, not only verbally violently, obviously, disagreeing with something. Maybe yeah. just sort of one notch beyond where you'd normally be in the professional world. Okay. Um, and I think if I look back... I, I can think of, I'm not talking, I'm not, probably not even talking once a year, but I can think of a, a finite number of incidents where I've thought, my gosh, I really was not my best there. And if you plotted my anxiety levels on a graph, those incidents were probably where my anxiety level, levels were at their highest. Hmm. And And... And that's kind of looking back on it reflectively. So, so it manifests itself. You said both kind of physically and mentally. So physically, in in someone grabbing you, you know, feeling like someone's grabbing your guts and wringing them out. Yeah. Um. You described it as mental overload. And so looking back on it now, you you sort of say you can see the pattern between when when those one step beyond what a normal professional kind of interaction would would have been, plot that with my anxiety levels and they were really high. So, with the work that you've done recently, how when does when does your awareness of the anxiety kick in? Well, the work's been about actually removing the causes of it. Oh, okay. Rather than managing it. All oh, right. Okay. So, ha- so, so tell the, me more about that then. Well, I've just I just think we're in a world where we're just constantly bombarded with negativity these days. Um, so. Um, as a specific example, and we met through Twitter, um, and that would be a shining example of how it can be a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I first went onto Twitter when I was leading HR for Macmillan Cancer Support, and I was very much encouraged by the social media team to go onto Twitter as a campaigning mechanism. I go out there with a point of view on things, and they were always thinking in terms of camping, campaigning on behalf of people affected by cancer. Yeah, And I kind of had that as my Twitter brand, you know, having a having something to say let's put it that way okay um, along with a lot of other people who've got things they want to say and some of them not very pleasant people who you know sit behind their anonymous accounts and you know, so on and so forth yeah and 
had some really unfortunate interactions out there. So I suddenly realised that I need to manage Twitter better and social media better. So I'm now doing it completely on my terms, which I'm not sure is going down too well with some people because I've halved the number of people I follow, okay, um, including some people who I love to bits in the real world, but somehow it doesn't feel right on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a relationship with the real world, and let's let's build on that. Yeah. Um, but also not listening to the news so much, not looking at the news websites so much, not having news alerts, you know, pumping stuff out all day. When I'm working at my home office, not having Radio 4 on in the background, having music on instead. Um, thinking consciously about where I spend time, thinking consciously about the type of literature that I'm reading. It's so on and so forth. And all of them are quite small steps, but actually they've had a huge impact. Um, the other thing is, <clears throat> back to the retreats, um, I work with an amazing guy there who's, uh, I suppose it's quite hard to put a label on him, but something like, let's say, a, a healer or an energy guy. Okay. Um, I had some real breakthroughs with him recently as well after some really concerted work by both of us. Uh, so a combination of different things. Um, and um, everything just feels a little bit more um, level than it was a few months ago, a little bit more, um, I suppose, in control. Mm. And just not worrying about stuff that isn't worth worrying about. You know, making yeah. that choice. And was that a stuff that was kind of out of your control? When, yeah, so, for example, the news that you would be consuming or the um, the interactions that you'd be having online? Yeah, I mean, there's other stuff as well. I mean, it just as context, you know, father died two years ago. That brought back everything about mother dying. Then we had to deal with the estate, you know, stepmom living with in the advanced stages of dementia, you know, so on and so forth. Right. There's all that going on. Plus, in yeah. you know, father-in-law's not well, etc., etc., etc. If you add into that a world and back to our topic, so we're linking together the anxiety and the you know, feeling different or being mm. different in the world, you know a less tolerant world than maybe it was a few years ago. Well, certainly it feels that way. So that absolutely is a trigger for anxiety. Yeah. Did we think we'd won a lot of battles in terms of it being a more inclusive society only to see it actually swigging back away from that? I think you could argue that that has at least partially happened. Um, and the experiences of people from different countries, the experiences of people of different race, mm. and the experiences of people of different sexuality in the current world and in the current United Kingdom um, are not, I don't think, overall as positive as they were five to ten years ago. Okay. So it all starts to link together, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's not, again, this all sounds very dark. One of the things I wanted to really emphasise is that actually if you can harness this difference, if you can really think it through... Um, I think it leads to certainly led for me being a more empathetic person at least some of the time Um, (laughs) um, as I said a more inclusive person certainly think a better coach because you you bring these experiences into the coaching um, relationship Mm. Um, uh, much more I think think empathetic Uh, so there's a real positive part to this yeah absolutely and and how um, uh, I've got three questions in my head, so I'm trying to decide if, if, what, which ones I want to ask in what order. So, and so you mentioned that the experiences help you be more empathetic, be more inclusive. 
So how how do you harness the anxiety to help you? I notice things. Um, you know, what's going on? We're heading into the realms of Gestalt coaching here. Um, <laughs> controversial. Um, so, for example, I was coaching someone who, by any measure, was a success already, and it's just the sort of person that's a dream client for a coach. Um, chief exec, hugely successful, wants to get to the next level of performance, wants a coach. Well, what's not to like? Um, and I found him very impressive indeed, um, which of course you have to watch out for mm-hmm. um, because does that take you to a certain place in your coaching? So yeah. where are you coming from with your coaching practice? And um, in one session, I noticed I was feeling anxious. And I could try, I was, as he was talking about something, I was just trying to work through, well, what's this telling me? What's going on here? Mm. Um, and I really tuned into that visceral stuff again. Um, and later in the session, he was talking about um, his new strategy and launching it. So, you know, pretty significant decision for him. And I just gently said, am I picking up any fear here? And he looked at me and I thought, hmm, have I just blown it? Um, there's my anxiety at play. Yeah. Um, and he said, actually, you know what, I haven't told anyone, but actually I'm very scared about this decision. Um, so I find myself chief exec. I'm about to make one of those decisions which would sit on a company's timeline. Um, you know, looking back, these were some of the big decisions that we took. Mm. Um, and it feels pretty lonely. And um, yes, I think you're right. There is some fear here. So we then worked on that because, of course, that's potentially his interference. And so how do we overcome that and help him be at his best and so on? Yeah. Um, I mean, he wasn't petrified and you know, unable to act, but it was there. It was, it yeah. was an element. So that would be, I think, an example of actually harnessing it and using it in service of a client's objectives. And it was a breakthrough for him in that, in that coaching um, assignment. Um, quite a big moment for him, I think. Mm. Thank you. And, and how, so is, there, is there a risk in that that um, yeah, is there a risk that 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 you project that anxiety where it isn't, and and if there is, how do you temper that? Yes, there is, um, and um, I was taught well um, by the guy who's still my coaching supervisor, um, wonderful guy called Sheridan Maguire, um, and one of the many things I picked up from him when I was sort of formalising my coaching development. Um, was the importance of creating the right space for your coaching, um, and that's physically and mentally. Mm. So um, I am always way too early for a coaching assignment. I have always ensured that we're in the right sort of room for it, or we're not going to be interrupted. Um, I have, as part of always being early, um, always created space um, to have walked around the block a few times back to our walking point, yeah. Um, cleared my mind, cleared myself of my stuff. Um, so I'm 
I'm not sure if blank canvas is quite the right way of putting it, but you'll take my point. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, works. Yeah. Um, and um, so I think yes, knowing this, I mean, frankly, any coach should or does do this, um, but not sort of dashing in last minute, feeling stressed and anxious and so on. Then it's going to really have an impact on the coaching session. And I would say the same in terms of um, how I operate generally. So despite the fact that I've got a, you know, against many criteria, an extroversion preference, if you look, and we're talking Myers-Briggs, I suppose here, um, on one of the features, um, or one of the elements, um, I've got a much stronger preference for intimacy than for being gregarious. So in a party yeah, okay. environment, um, possibly all linked into this, you know, how will people react to me if they find out about the real me? Um, because I've had some interesting experiences in a social environment as well um, mm. as a gay man. Um, and you'll tend to find me finding someone who I really got on very well with and in the corner with them for two hours rather than being life and soul of the party. Yeah. Um, and I have to sometimes really think myself into the mindset of um, going to social gathering when actually I think probably many people see me as the sort of person who can work the room. I'm, I'm not. I'm really not. Mm. Um, so um, there's um, I suppose there's some dissonance there between different facets of my own personality and indeed therefore uh, difference in how I behave at times so I have to you know, really think myself into certain social contexts as well yeah so I, I have a similar um, you know so the the whole you know, kind of big circle of yeah, extroversion, big circle of friends, you know, load, you know, knows everybody and that sort of stuff. Whereas I, I would say that, you know, I, I, I have one best friend um, and, and then, and then a few really good friends and then lots of associates, you know, in, in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, whilst again, having, you know, you know whether you, whether you factor, you did it on a big five or, or other kind of preference assessing tool um yeah the, it would suggest that i am more extrovert than introvert so yeah okay all right and so so i think i want to bring it together then so we've we've explored um difference and and what that difference you know has meant for you in different experiences and different times in your in your work life um we've then talked about how that difference can link in with some anxiety and, and how those two things have, have kind of combined and joined together at different times to, to form different aspects of, of the experiences that you've had and how then that there have been some real um, strengths or, or benefits for you that have come out from those experiences around inclusivity around um, the instinct instinctive wasn't the word you used intuition intuition um and empathetic um aspects that you talked about earlier on so is, is there anything else then that you're sort of thinking feeling or want to say around everything that we've talked about to, to bring us together to a close if you think about it in the context of the um inclusive leadership or inclusion um development sessions that i sometimes run hmm if someone was listening to this and is in the slightest bit interested in anything I've had to say, uh, hopefully some people will be, um, 
I think the important point is that um, the person sitting next to you in the office could be bringing a lot of this kind of stuff to the table with them, into your interactions with them. Mm. And so certainly for a leader, but frankly for anyone, pausing to reflect, giving people space to um, go where they want to go, suspending your own I suppose judgment criteria about things um, again to give people the, the the opportunity to bring their experiences to bear and to be as open about things as they want to be um, so you know, appropriately open for themselves is just crucial I think it really could unlock things if more people really right. worked on this um, and that's what we're all in business to to do isn't it which is to create better workplaces to create you know get, help people be at their best you know, be at their best performance regardless of what sort of measures they are um, uh, and so on um, I just think that as with other guests that you've had um, if people can suspend their own life experience at the times and I have to do this as well obviously mm, yeah, um, yeah. In, in service of really understanding the person in front of them and I know I've repeated that point I think that's a huge learning point certainly and I think it potentially is a real differentiator as well um, in organisational life and some people do this really well by the way um, I've highlighted examples of where things haven't gone well I've did some fantastic examples of how people have made me feel extremely included so let's mm. remember to talk about the, the positives as well um you know there are some people who are very very gifted at this so can we increase the number of people who are gifted at this um in service of having the workplaces we want to have yeah wonderful thank you tony oh you're welcome it's uh, you've really got me thinking on this so thank you and thank you thank you for uh, guiding me through this experience so effortlessly because it's it's obviously a big topic um, it's mm. intensely personal stuff as well um, yeah. and you know, thank you for um, the ease um, with which you've uh, guided me through it oh, you're welcome thank you um, so if um, so some, I guess some standard questions that I ask for most of my guests at the end of the podcast is is there any books or resources or kind of videos talks or, or places that if, you know, if people are interested in some of the things that we've talked about today and, and trying to find out more are there any uh, where would you guide them to go I think that's a really interesting question I instinctively respond to the which books you read by steering people away from business books <laughs> yeah um, okay so which works of literature will open people's minds to difference to the experience of others so for example um what yeah. one that really opened my mind was um the poisonwood bible by barbara king solver which i think frankly should be on the curriculum of every school in the world um all about the different experiences of people in the cultures in which they find themselves um, a wonderful work of fiction 
Um, and I learned much more from that than I've learned from any business book. I can confidently say that. Okay. Um, if people are really interested in um, you know, the psychological side of things, I think the book that's influenced me most in my coaching practice is by a guy called Bruce Peltier, that's P-E-L-T-I-E-R, which is called The Psychology of Executive Coaching. And it's designed for therapists thinking of entering the coaching world, but can be read either the other way around, or frankly okay. by anyone, because it really opens up a whole load of different models and ways of thinking for you. Um, okay. And yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, but I think the, hmm, the the answer to this one doesn't necessarily lie in a book. Yes, okay. Um, the, the answer, I think, lies in conversations, um, in making space to really understand the people around us and where they're coming from. Um, and as we've already discussed, um, in, in the behaviours people display as leaders and as colleagues, um, in trying to create the conditions of, well, of, firstly of inclusion and also the conditions for um, the highest possible performance. And this is what it's all about, isn't it? Um, and I'm a great believer that um, the more included people feel in the, in the workplace, the more likely you are to get higher performance out of them and the team within which they sit. So it's the right thing to do, but also if people need a business case, then I think there's a business case for it as well. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Um, and are there any um, any guests that you um, would recommend that I seek out to, to come on the podcast or any um, anyone you'd like to hear from in particular? Hmm. I think I've got a bit of a blank on that one, I'm afraid. Um, no, that's fine. So, I, so I might need to reflect anything come, on that. <laughs> yeah, so if anything, if anything comes to mind, then let me know. Sure. Um, and, yeah, and, and I think all that leaves me then is, is to say a very heartfelt thank you, Tony. So thank you for, for A, your time, um, B, for uh, for sharing your experiences, sharing your stories, and, and being so open um, along the way. I've, I've really enjoyed um, our, our conversation today. It's been really helpful and really insightful. So thank you very much. Really, well, thank you too. And you've, you've got a good thing going on with the series. So I'm going to be trying to yeah, read more and more. Sorry, listen to more and more of them as well. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, recorded, and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.